There is a library that exists at the nexus where all other universes collide. Inevitably, things wind up there by mistake. Books, artifacts, people. This is the place where things from all universes end up when they get lost. This is the Eternity Archives. Welcome to the Eternity Archives, an actual play podcast where we take on the roles of archivists who travel to different dimensions to try to save it or something. My name is Bappy, my pronouns are they, them, and I play real Deidre Kale, who is a little tiefling cinnamon roll, and these are my co-hosts. Hi, I'm Ziva, my pronouns are she, her, and I play Linda, the adorable human office lady who does canonically have a cold in this chapter. <laughs> Hi, I'm Dorka. My pronouns are she, her. I play Zen, the barbarian lizard princess. This arc, we actually have a special guest who is GMing for us. Why don't you introduce yourself, special guest? Hi, my name is Ember, and I'm meeting all of these people for the very first time, and I have never heard of them (laughs) in my entire life. (laughs) Uh, uh, No, you may remember me from the uh, Henshin arc, where I played Hope, an interdimensional traveler before she became an interdimensional archivist, who went along with the group, and they had a great time, and except for the part where they lost the artifact that they had to recover the anomaly but we're just gonna let that roll on by like we're just gonna water. skim past that that had no relevant to the relevance to the pot Shit happens. <laughs> and nothing bad has ever happened on the eternity archive since then definitely not my pronouns are she they and i will be taking on the role of gm this time because for some reason they have decided to leave their lives in my terrible grubby gay little hands oh i love it i love dirty gay hands so in order to scoot us right around to talking more about the the system and the the theme and stuff that we're doing what is your favorite piece of cyberpunk media I feel a little bit weird answering this question because I actually really love cyberpunk as a genre. But when I was thinking about cyberpunk stuff, I was like, wait, what actual cyberpunk things like have I consumed? So I don't know why I love cyberpunk, even though I haven't actually like read or or played that much cyberpunk stuff. So I actually had to like pull up Wikipedia and read like list of cyberpunk media. That's me like every question when we're like, hey, what's your favorite thing? And I'm like, oh, I love thing. This will be easy. And it's just like me staring at a wall for five hours. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what it is about that. But I guess Wikipedia said this counted. So I guess my favorite cyberpunk thing is The Matrix, which is not necessarily. Yeah, it's not like traditional cyberpunk in terms of like big city, cybernetically enhanced people, corporate whatnots. um, But it is. But thematically. Yeah, it's very thematically cyberpunk. And it's also fucking cool as shit. So that's my answer. The Matrix. This is another, this is one of those things where I'm like, yes, I love Thing and I can never think of Thing. But I'm going to say Transistor, which is actually kind of the opposite of Ziva's answer in this, in the sense that like setting wise and like artistically and presentation wise, it's very cyberpunk. But I'm not sure if I would say the themes of it are super cyberpunk because it's more of like a romance story. But it's been a hot minute since I played Transistor. Fun fact, I don't know if I've ever gushed about this, but I love Supergiant Games. They're my favorite game studio i will buy anything of theirs like instantly because it's everything they make is like fucking beautiful anyway transistor beautiful game love it just aesthetic everything it's so good just so fucking good like play it it's great four hours every time worth it all right so i guess it's my turn I do not have a favorite cyberpunk. Generally, I kind of resent cyberpunk as a genre. I just like do not like it. Or I guess more accurately, like I think the ideas behind cyberpunk are generally pretty cool and interesting, but I feel like it always falls flat in the execution for me where the point they're trying to make is undermined by the way they're making it. 
so much cyberpunk is like, oh, you can literally buy and sell women's bodies and do whatever you want with them. And it's like, I understand that they're trying to make a point about like how horrible that is, but it always comes across like so sexualized and gross that it just leaves me feeling icky. I don't know, a lot of like really ableist themes with like, you can replace parts of your body with cybernetics, but it makes you less human. And I have a lot of feelings about cyberpunk, and they're mostly negative. (laughs) It's like that meme where it's like the thematics of cyberpunk, but then like people, what people actually see are like, whoa, cool future. (laughs) And it's like, no, that's, that's the point (laughs) is that like, it's not a cool future. It's, it's, you know, it's, I don't know. It's about everything sucks. Yeah. 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 No cyberpunk future is cool. They're all horrible (laughs) dystopias. Yeah. It's kind of like, you know, like cyberpunk. Is it 2099? I always figure. 2077. Yes. Thank you. Big on cyber, short on punk. Yeah, basically. Yeah. I I think that's, that is essentially like what Dorka's whole thing is like big on cyber and not on punk. (laughs) Yeah. I'm going to come back to that part of the discussion because uh, I actually have prepared a short overview of of cyberpunk and part wait, of it. Wait, wait, what's your favorite cyberpunk? Mine is uh, Snow Crush, a book by okay. Neil Stevenson, which came out in the early 90s. It was kind of one of the first cyberpunk experiences I, I had because back whenever I used to have to drive an hour and 15 minutes to get to and from work, I had a lot of time to listen to audiobooks. And Snow Crash is definitely one of the ones, especially, that has come up a lot more relevant nowadays because it's, it's very big on the whole digital world and virtual avatar aspect of everyone kind of living this this other life in a, in a digital landscape, which with all the conversation that's been happening recently as of the time of this recording about stuff like Facebook's meta and the metaverse and Web3 and, and, and all this stuff that it's talking about, it's kind of become even more relevant now, which is, is, is also one of those things I'm going to bring up whenever I talk about cyberpunk here in a minute. Uh, but yeah, you know, Snow, Snow Crash is, is up there. Oh, I'm actually I'm really glad that you uh, that you brought up uh, some of those themes, Ember, because now's actually a really great time to announce the Eternity Archives NFT metaverse that we're going to be launching. Oh, oh God. God. <laughs> you all can personally pay me $100 and I will um, write you a really nice note about the NFT you just bought. <laughs> Still worth more than actual NFTs. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> don't forget to set a forest fire somewhere in like, I don't know, North Alaska. Yeah, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go in the backyard and yell at some deer for every person who pays me a hundred dollars. Actually, that's what the NFT is. The NFT is actually just a video clip of Ziva flying <laughs> to the Amazon and setting fires. <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm gonna start off mostly for I suppose the benefit of the audience who may not know what cyberpunk is. Cyberpunk is a primarily sci-fi genre with elements of of film noir that can be best described as high-tech, low-life, where you've taken place an unspecified number of years, generally from the present day. You've got a case of there's been severe technological advancements, and there's a lot of highly advanced science, which constitutes the cyber part of the name. But at the same time, you've had massive societal breakdown or upheaval in a dystopian future, which constitutes the punk part of it. You know, you've got characters that are walking around with, you know, fully functional cybernetic limbs or organs, and you've got, you know, like holographic displays and everything's wireless. But at the same time, you've got class stratification is worse than ever. Environmental effects have absolutely devastated the planet. Rich and powerful mega corporations that just control everything up to and including the highest levels of government. So primarily conflict in these settings comes from usually the view of those who are on the bottom of society. You've got what you would typically view as, as thieves or criminals are bad guys who are generally just trying to stake out an existence as best as they can. In a lot of these cases, these characters are going to have technological niceties that have been made available on a widely public scale, but they're still facing these kind of problems of being controlled by a society that largely doesn't care about them. So the term itself was coined by an author named Bruce Bethke in 1983 in his short story of the same name, Cyberpunk. It is, as noted, a very strongly sci-fi associated series. It's almost universally a dystopian future. It's generally dark and cynical in tone. More optimistic cyberpunk that sort of goes on how humanity not only managed to confront these issues, but also solve them in this kind of future is often called solar punk to represent its more bright, shining future nature. The genre itself is descended from mostly sort of like the the new wave science fiction that was written in the 60s and 70s. Um, Stuff like Philip K. Dick's Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. 
Brave New World, for instance, is not technically a cyberpunk novel, but it's sort of in the proto stage. You can see a lot of the ideas, but it sort of bursts into the scene on the 80s with a number of landmark works. Neuromancer, Snow Crash, uh, Akira, actually, the, the anime movie is, is definitely cyberpunk. Judge Dredd, the comic series, and of course, Blade Runner. Blade Runner was, was hugely influential, especially in the aesthetic of, of cyberpunk. The 90s, it, it sort of tapered off closer to the 2000s. Uh, the 90s had Snow Crash, Diamond Age, and The Matrix, which, while not super cyberpunk in a lot of it, certainly has a lot of cyberpunk elements. The genre kind of tapered down in the, the early 2000s, but we've been seeing a resurgence of it throughout the past about decade or so, as people have sort of rediscovered a lot of these older works, looked at them in the lens of today, where we're seeing the beginning of some of these issues that we saw in those particular works of, you know, overreach of corporate control, class stratification and division just getting larger and larger, environmental problems. And on a fandom side, that's why we've seen stuff like the Shadowrun revival. Whether you like it or not, Cyberpunk 2077 is a, a sign of this, this resurgence of the genre. And of course, with the resurgence, we are starting to see a rise of more marginalized creators and more diverse voices that are contributing to this genre, which, while interesting in a lot of ways, certainly has its own issues, which Dorka brought up earlier, of cases where you've got transhumanism that is perceived in almost an expressly negative light. And in 2077, especially the video game, you've got a lot of cases where it's, as, as noted, big on cyber and rather short on the punk part of it. Blade Runner for as, as landmark as it was and as good a movie as it was and as, as much as it did for the genre largely established the prevalence of East Asian cultures in cyberpunk as an aesthetic rather than as an actual part of the genre. So you have a lot of cases where these movies and these these shows and games are borrowing from those cultures without necessarily including any parts of it that aren't just aesthetics. So that's that's cyberpunk in a in a small nutshell description. It's a genre that I find particularly compelling, especially when you go back and you read kind of those old formative novels and you realize that, you know, in some cases, a lot of these things were startlingly predictive of the future that we've got and not in all the best ways. I'm really excited that we're talking about cyberpunk because I feel like it's the last major genre of tabletop game that we have not covered because we've done fantasy. We've done space. And we've done vampires, but we haven't done uh, cyberpunk yet. Now we need to do cyberpunk space vampires. Those are the four major genres of tabletop. Fantasy, space, vampires, and cyberpunk. Yeah. Where did Monster of the Week fit in with that? Was that like... Vampires. Vampires. Right. You're right. Yeah, Miriam was a vampire. So now that you've got kind of a a briefing on what cyberpunk is and, and isn't, we can talk about the game that we're playing. Hack the Planet is a Forged in the Dark game, which means it uses the base system of Blades in the Dark. It is by Fraser Simon. It was originally kickstarted and subsequently published. Blades in the Dark system itself is originally by John Harper, but uh, the system itself has been made into a general framework that pretty much any game can use. It's really exciting to get to play Blades. I know that it's a favorite of a lot of different people, and it's actually been very requested a lot of times when we when we talk about what games we're going to play in the future. People always ask, are you going to play Blades in the Dark? That's like my favorite. So it's exciting to get to actually do a Blades game. So here we are playing Blades in the Dark, except for it's in a shitty future where awful things have happened, and there's giant buildings, but also also giant class divisions. Unlike the setting of the original Blades in the Dark, which is a shitty fantasy Victorian era. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to find here in a second that this is a system very well set up for sort of gritty, shitty games like this. Yes. So Hack the Planet also comes with its own setting, which as a consequence of the fact that this is a game and I've also had my own setting in mind for this, we are not going to use uh, pretty much any of, uh, but I would be slightly remiss in, in not talking about it. But so in, in the future, uh, the internet is gone, has been taken away. Um, massive climate change and climate disasters have radically altered both the physical and the cultural landscape of the world. Due to these these massive climate events and these, as they're called in the book, acts of God, intercontinental communication is impossible. It's it's so hard to go anywhere because the sun itself kills you very quickly if you happen to get caught in it. That's just Bappy's everyday <laughs> life. <laughs> uh, so in this awful future, uh, humanity occupies the Reach, which are sort of the, the regions of the world that are left that can be traveled without dying horrifically. And most people reside in this megacity called Shelter One, which is what the huge corporations built whenever they realized, oh shit, everything's going awful. We need to 
protect our investment. And by that, I mean the people. So they built this massive, massive corporate controlled shelter where people live and work. Unlike real life. Unlike real life, uh, where we <laughs> instead just have smaller houses or boy, I hope we don't go back to corporate housing because that would just be awful. It's either homelessness or corporate housing. Yeah, I know, right? You know? Ain't the, ain't the future great? <laughs> Good, um, good choices. <laughs> so the the setting of uh, Hack the Planet is is within this shelter one where people live and work and manage to eke out a living. So that's that's Hack the Planet's basic setting. The rules itself, I guess we can go ahead and, and do a, a short overview. In in Hack the Planet, the player characters are referred to as glitches. They are the the punks and in a lot of cases the outcasts of society. In Shelter 1, everyone has nanites that are put into the food that go into their bodies so they can be tracked. Glitches are notable in that they have hacked these nanites so they can no longer be on the on the system. They are off the grid. In a lot of cases, you'd kind of be hard-pressed to call them heroes, but that's sort of one of the hallmarks of cyberpunk fiction, is that in a lot of cases, your good guys are going to do some bad things. Now, in this case, obviously, I have far less control over the player characters. As much as I would love to stick a gun into Linda's hand and have her try and beat something out of a suspect, I don't think she's going to do that. We'll see. (laughs) I may be misled, but I I may go ahead and present that up. But one of the first things Hack the Planet does, at least in the first session, is it advises you to establish sort of a a tone for the setting. So we're going to be going on sort of the lighter edge of cyberpunk, partially for time and, and concern reasons, but also just because whenever I pulled them earlier, they were like, yeah, we'd like things a little bit lighter and softer, especially coming after the arc that they just managed to do. Yeah, hopefully this time we'll stick to killing the enemies and not trying to kill each other. So we'll see. We'll see. So in Hack the Planet, the player characters take the role of glitches and they form a crew. The crew, of course, takes jobs within the the city of Shelter One, acquires turf, acquires influence, and sort of wants to rise up to be the top dogs as much as they can be. So one of the things that Pack the Planet emphasizes on is that the game is a conversation between the players and the GM, and they all tell a story together. You know, the GM is responsible for running the setting and portraying the NPCs and the world, and the players are responsible for portraying their own characters and, and interacting with that world. But they are both there to tell a story together. So it, it's a dice pool system. You assemble a number of dice, you roll, and then you take the highest die to determine what happens when you roll. If you get a six, it's a full success, which means you get what you want without any negative effects. If you roll two dice and roll multiple sixes, then you critically succeed, which means you get what you want and then some. If the highest die is a four or a five on your roll, it's a partial success, which means you get what you want, but you also get a consequence. Perhaps the effect of your roll is limited. Perhaps you get some harm. Perhaps something pops up to make your life more difficult. If the highest die result is between a 1 and a 3, things go poorly. Not only do you not get what you want, but chances are something awful is going to happen to make the situation even worse. There are a couple of primary roles that you're going to be doing. The most common is going to be the action role, which is anytime the player wants to do something and the outcome is itself in doubt, the player gets to make the action role. Uh, Aside from that, you also have engagement roles, downtime roles, and resistance roles that are all roles that the PCs will make. Engagement rules are used before you start a heist. It's it's sort of the it takes the the equivalent of the the montage before something happens in any good heist or or thief movie. The downtime rule is what happens whenever the PCs manage to have some time to themselves and they can go off and accomplish their own things. And the resistance rule is when the PC says, actually, no, I don't want that negative consequence to happen, so I'm I'm going to prevent it from happening. And as a result, they take some stress. So the real fun happens whenever they run out of stress and can't do that anymore, and then really bad things get to happen. The PCs in this game all have uh, a number of action ratings. You get generally one die per rating that you have in a given action whenever you attempt to do an action, and then you use that to assemble your die pool as as part of the action roll, along with a number of other factors that may happen. The action roll is notable uh, coming from other games, especially that I've noticed, in that it has a couple of components to it more than just do you want to do the thing and will you succeed. Notably, it also constitutes, uh, part part of it is a position, which is namely where the character is starting from. It's going to be either controlled, risky, or desperate, with a controlled situation being something that you have well in hand. Using the example we had with Linda earlier would be if they have, they're interrogating someone and this person is tied up to a chair, has already been drugged, and, and, you know, Linda has some particularly good information on them, that would be an example of a controlled situation. The PCs have it well in hand, they have an advantage on their side, and they're operating from a position of strength. By contrast, the desperate position is when the PCs are operating from a large position of weakness. 
So for the, the person who was sitting in the chair, if they were attempting to do something, that would definitely be a very desperate position for them. They have no upper hand in the situation. Managing to get the upper hand will be an extremely difficult process for them, assuming they even can, and they are not in any real place to make a bold or brash move and hope that it has much of an effect. Sitting in between those, the default position is risky, which means you don't exactly have the upper hand, but you're not really operating from a position of weakness either. It's kind of the the all-purpose, you want to do something, you're at maybe a slight disadvantage, or you're, the advantage that you do have is not enough. Most of the time, they will be operating from a risky position. It's kind of an interesting mechanic because it's just sort of like, you know, in D&D, there's like disadvantage or advantage, which is like similar, if if not basically the same thing. But it kind of adds in more of a, a nicely wrapped narrative. I like it when games do that. I think I've said that before. I probably have. But it's just cool when people find ways to sort of gamify narrative stuff. Yeah, as, as far as comparing this to other games we've played, I think the Forged in the Dark system shares a lot in common with Wild Sea. It's kind of a grittier version of Wild Sea, but a lot of the basics are pretty similar, like the um, position and impact for your roles and like the dice pool with your skills. So uh, if you, you know, listened to that arc a few arcs ago, you'll find some, some similarity and some common ground here. I'm actually really glad you said that because it actually also reminds me a lot of Wild Sea, which is like an odd comparison on its face because they're extremely different tonally. But yeah, there actually is a lot in here in terms of, I should say, I guess, narrification of game mechanics, but also in terms of the balance and then the emphasis is they place on storytelling. I think you could, if you were familiar with Blades in the Dark, that you would have an easy time picking up Wild Sea and vice versa. I kind of found it most similar in terms of understanding to Monster of the Week, um, which I've played a number of times before this, at least in the sense of how, you know, roles are resolved and you've got full success, partial success, failure kind of mechanic. Because one of the things that Blades in the Dark emphasizes is that the player knows the risk going in. And not only do they know the risk, in some level, even know the potential effect that this might have. Because as, as part of creating an action role is that the player chooses the action that they want to use. But most of the time, you know, if, if there's a way that it can work, the GM is encouraged to go ahead and, and find a way that it can work. Assuming, of course, that the player knows this is not going to be the best approach for this particular scenario. I really appreciate in games like this, the sort of emphasis on player agency. I think we've seen that a lot in a lot of newer, more modern games. And in the Forged in the Dark system, you see that especially, I think, in the resistance roles, which I think is one of my favorite mechanics of this sort of game. Ember touched on it briefly, but basically the GM can give you a consequence and you can say, no, that doesn't happen. And I think that's great, personally. It's 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 definitely good at putting that the power to to say yes or no to that back in the hands of the players. Not even just in terms of a like fuck the GM, we're going to do what we want situation, um, but more in in terms of of allowing the player and the GM to create this story together. Where the GM says, okay, well, I think because of what you did, this consequence is going to happen, and the player gets to go, no, actually, I don't want that to happen. I would rather you know negate that and take some stress and continue on. I think it's a good way to to both give the players, as, as you just noted, some more agency in this, but also it helps the GM learn exactly what kind of consequences the players do and don't want to see and, and what they do and don't want to happen. And in that way, both of you evolve the game forward along the path that you both want the narrative to go. Yeah, absolutely. So after you set the position for the action one, which is noted is going to be controlled, risky, or desperate, you then have to set the effects level for the action, which is itself any one of, of three. It's going to be limited, standard, or great. The player describes what they want to happen, the player chooses the action they want, and then the GM sets the position and the effect. It's one of those cases where you can technically use any skill to do anything, but obviously some skills are going to be better at other things than others. You know, For instance, if you're trying to pick a physical lock, Generally, the thing you might want to go ahead and do and use modify, which is specifically there for physically altering things to achieve your goal. 
You don't have to use modify. If you manage, for instance, to discover that the lock itself is hooked up to a computer system, you might be able to use hack to do it instead. So there's a lot of different ways and approaches that you can go after the same objective. And ultimately, it falls on the player to determine that. But of course, the consequence of that is that certain things just may not have as great of an effect as other things. So after you set the position and the effect and you have the action rating set, you have the goal set and all that, then you add in some bonus dice, you roll the dice and the GM interprets the results and play continues from there. But there's a good number of pages that that detail the action roll. They spend a lot of time talking about this because as noted, it's kind of arguably as core of a mechanic as you're going to get for this because the action roll is going to comprise the vast majority of the rules made in any given session. And I, I find that really handy because it, it, it helps you figure out exactly what is going to be important for this game just by the amount of time that it talks about it. The resistance roll, as is noted, is something that you can do whenever you uh, get a consequence and the player just says, no, actually, I don't want that to happen. Uh, so as a result, they are going to take some stress from that, which is sort of a, you know, not literally hit points because uh, there are no hit points in Forge in the Dark Systems, or at least in, in Hack the Planet. But it's it's a, a well of... of of a resource that you can use to resist these kinds of consequences. Resisting a consequence takes a different amount of stress depending on what you roll, but as noted, it's a really interesting way for PCs to just be like, nope, I don't want that to happen, it's not going to happen, so we're gonna, I'm going to resist that, and we are going to move the heck on. The other major, and, and the last major thing that I'm going to go over as far as parts of the system that are at least unique to that, is that it has a very heavy emphasis on progress clocks, which is almost exactly what it sounds like. It's a circle that you draw on a piece of paper that is divided into a number of segments. And the purpose of progress clocks is to abstract things that happen in a sense that makes way for the fiction and is something that is easy to keep track of. More complex obstacles and things like alarms that might be happening, or even like a car chase that might be happening, all of these things can be turned into clocks with the more complex they are, the more segments they're going to have on that clock. Generally, once the clock is full, something gets to happen then. Could be good, could be bad, depending on exactly what you're doing to create the clock. Clocks was another mechanic that we use a lot in Wild Sea. And I am going to confirm what uh, Ziva suggested earlier, because I had been playing in a Blades in the Dark game before running Wild Sea for y'all, and uh, that background did like really help me with that. Yeah, I think the clocks are really interesting. I know in our last arc, uh, Mikey mentioned that as someone who sometimes has a hard time GMing, that um, Blaze was full of really wonderful uh, GMing like lessons and tools. And even as someone who was just reading this from the point of view of a player, they kept putting these like little nuggets in there of like really useful things as a GM that I just never thought about or that were really nice to have like a uh, like a, like see like written down explicitly. Um, and clocks is definitely one of those things where it's like, well, of course that's like a perfect way to keep track of all these um, these various um, factors that are gonna influence how how your story goes. I just thought they were really neat. They were like a little complex. Like it's definitely something that I would want a friend to like run me through an example of how they've used it in their game. But um, it's just like a very sensible way to keep track of a lot of complex information that you can tell where you are just at a glance. That's a mechanic you could use in any game in any system just to keep track of background events and stuff that's going to come back to haunt you later. Yes. I wish I knew about the clocks before my last one because um, I didn't end up using them, but there are lots of spots in that universe that I could have used them that would have been really neat. It's a very handy system. You know, uh, uh, the big attitude of a lot of games is you are PCs, you are special by default. You know, Monster of the Week literally makes this quite true. Um, but in, in this, you are one group of many. You are all trying to occupy the same space. You are all trying and often going after the same sort of objectives. Um, so the, the clocks are a good way to to keep track of that and, and cause things to happen based on the PC crew. Yeah, 13th Age, this is not. Yeah, <laughs> there is so much going on, uh, and then sometimes you get a giant hurricane that comes in and tries to tear the roof off. So those are the, the primary mechanics of Hack the Planet. I didn't talk too much about harm, mostly because it's not a particularly difficult system. You have a couple of harm boxes. Uh, harm can be taken as a consequence of doing poorly on a roll. Uh, or even just as part of the story. It's one of those things that the GM can administer out as they desire and if it makes sense in the fiction. There are a couple of other specific things to Blades in the Dark that I haven't mentioned, mostly because as a consequence, just as a format of this podcast, we're just not going to end up going into that. 
one of the main parts of of any Forge in the Dark game is the the faction game. You know, the the factions tussling for for space and attitude. But you know, you guys aren't going to be in the setting long enough for that to have too much of an effect. So you're just not going to see a whole lot of that. You know, things like how money works and, and and how stashing works. You know, like planning these characters for retirement and stuff like that. Even downtime are all very essential parts of the game that unfortunately we just don't have the time to really get into. If you're more interested in, in reading these, of course, feel free to pick up a copy of, of Hack the Planet or Blades in the Dark. If you like how it feels, go ahead and, and, and pick it up and see if it might be good for a game you'd like to run. Question for you, Ember. Yes. Does Hack the Planet have the same emphasis on uh, flashbacks that Blades in the Dark As a matter does? of fact, it does. Uh, and thank you for reminding me. I suppose I actually should talk about a score, since you guys are going to be doing at least one, maybe a couple of these. So there's, there's three primary phases to Hack the Planet. You've got free play, which is it's what you're doing in between the other phases. You're, you're setting up for the next uh, score that you're doing. You're, you're doing maybe a little bit of wrap-up after your most recent downtime. It's the play you're in by default, unless you're doing something specific. Roleplay and character moments. Next up, you have the score, which begins with the engagement role. Planning the score also happens during free play, um, but once you do the engagement role, which sort of sets the basis for where you are at the start of the score, it's equivalent to like a smash cut. It's you, you start in the middle of the action. You start in the middle of things happening. Uh, and during the score, your whole goal is execute your plan, steal whatever you're going to steal, kill whoever you're going to kill, get whatever you're going to get, and then get out. Uh, and then once you're done that... You settle up a couple of things, like determine how much attention your gang has gotten, figure out if there's any lasting effects, and then the game moves into downtime. Uh, so to, to answer your question, but flashbacks are indeed emphasized quite heavily here in Hack the Planet as part of any given score. Flashbacks themselves are almost literally quite akin to things that you would see in any good heist movie, where, oh no, it sounds like bad things might be happening, or, oh no, we need this one specific tool, or, oh no, we need to account for this one specific scenario, um, and one of the guys pulls out the tool and goes, yeah, I thought we might need this, and then it cuts back to them in the shop grabbing something or making something. Flashbacks are a primary way to avoid the bog of, of planning. For planning a heist, obviously that requires, that's, that's something that requires a lot of real world time and investment and knowledge, but that slows down the flow of a game. Players get too bogged down in the weeds for that. So what they do is they say, when you have an idea for a target, skip the planning, skip all that, do an engagement role, figure out your approach that you're going to do, and then jump right into the action. Flashbacks are a way to establish that that planning has happened and account for things that are currently happening in the fiction. I love this system. I love how it gives the game such a cinematic feel and kind of just lets you adapt on the fly instead of that hour and a half long planning session that all falls apart as soon as you actually start to play. Like it just, it makes you look cool and competent without slowing down the flow of the game. Yeah, I feel like it, um, it really rewards creative problem solving off the top of your head. I cannot tell you how many freaking times I have played a game and gone, oh, I wish I'd done this. And this is a case where you can think of, oh, I wish I'd done this cool thing. And it turns out you actually can have done that cool thing. And it really lets the players think on their feet and it really rewards creativity, which is um, something that I really love in my tabletop, where you have the ability to be really creative and to have it be uh, rewarded by the story and by the GM. So yeah, I'm a, I, I think flashbacks sound, sound great. I'm really excited to, to hopefully get to use them. Oh yes, de- definitely. It's meant to play out like a, like a heist movie or like a like a TV show where you know you don't see them doing all this planning unless it's funny or there's a point to it. I think that's all the aspects of the system that I want to talk about. Uh, so why don't you all go ahead and tell me what playbooks you guys are going to be using for your characters? All right. So Zen is the Edge, which is an enhanced and proficient fighter. I bet none of y'all saw that coming. <laughs> Hack the Planet and Blades in the Dark like really has specialized characters, and you'll see that when I start talking about like the skills and stuff. Like you have very limited amount of skill points. And I, I will just say on the front end, Ember started us with three advances, I guess, which is, are kind of like the level level ups. Um, so we're not starting as like baby first session characters. We're a little more badass. But so a uh, little bit about Zen in Hack the Planet. Zen's special abilities are Battleborn, which are you may expend your special armor to reduce harm on an attack in combat 
or to push yourself during a fight, which basically means she has one free use to not get hurt. And she also has not to be trifled with, which is you can push yourself to do one of the following. Perform a feat of physical force that verges on the superhuman, or engage a small gang on equal footing in close combat. So basically, I can take some stress during the game to be the huge badass who holds the door, fights off the enemy all by herself. Uh, very zen. And we also all have cybernetics in this game. Zen's cybernetic enhances her rec skill, and I have decided to portray that Zen has like a reinforced robotic spine and tail, basically to crush and destroy and wreck whatever she may need to. Very cool. Yeah, cybernetic spine's pretty sick. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, just looks badass, is badass. It really is just this like strip of metal like running down her back her spine all the way over the top of the tail with like branching off pieces every so often it kind of looks like a spine just on the outside of her body and it is like shining dark metal and sort of digs into her skin to strengthen her her body and her bones it's like spine plating essentially yeah 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 that's cool they're like thagomizer spikes on the tail part, or is it like fanned out at the end so she can smack people with it, or is it mostly just there to to enhance her her own abilities? Ooh, it didn't <laughs> until you said thagomizer, and now I'm adding that in. What does that word mean? You know a stegosaurus? Yeah. The spikes on the end of a tail are called a thagomizer. Ah. That's the scientific term for it. It's from a Gary Larson cartoon. Yeah, it, it came from a from a far side panel where, you know, you've got a caveman doing a, a presentation. He was like, and these at the end are called the Thagomizer, named after the late Thag Simmons. And about that time, a lot of the scientists were like, actually, we don't really have a hugely formal name for that. So they've just started calling it that. There's today's dinosaur There's today's fact. dinosaur fact. We don't have to talk about, like, equipment or anything, because as part of that, like, score and flashback, you kind of decide what your equipment is on the fly. So, uh, character creation is really pretty simple, and that's kind of all there is to it, especially because we're not really dealing with the, um, the background stuff today. Um, so for Linda, I decided to be the faint, which is um, an ephemeral operator. So that's a very like like social one. I think the description says something like, if you want to manipulate and infiltrate groups, this is the one for you. And I was like, yes, the Linda class. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I'm sure no one could possibly have guessed that I was going to play Linda as a charisma heavy build. So her abilities are foresight, which is two times per score. You can assist a teammate without paying stress. Um, and then you tell how you prepared for this particular instance. And I also have risk averse, which is when you gather information through a faction you have a positive relationship with, clear one stress. Also, her cybernetics in this case is a um, cyber eye that um, increases visual acuity so that manifests itself as one point in study. So basically she can see a lot of details and pick up on those details even if other people can't. One quick note about the cybernetics is there's actually a really, really good note in the book that um, I wanted to mention, especially since Dorka brought up um, some of those problems with cyberpunk earlier. Um, they have a nice little note in the book about how um, cybernetics and transhumanism should be thought about carefully to make sure you aren't diving into ableist territory. As the resident uh, podcast disabled lady, um, I'm a huge fan of that. So I actually really like the way that they're like, cybernetics is a positive. Tell us what that looks like for you. They don't have any kind of system that like makes you lose humanity when you have cybernetics, which I really appreciate. So if that's like a story that you want to talk about of like, you know, Amazon replaced your frontal lobe with an Amazon brand frontal lobe. What happens when Alexa takes over your brain? You know, you can totally do that. But in terms of just like the base mechanics, they're like, don't be gross about it like using a prosthetic limb does not make you less human than someone who has their um you know their regular limb that they were born with don't be yucky and i really appreciate that so anyway linda has a special um cybernetic eye but it does not make her less human and that's very important now she's just a regular human office lady yeah regular human eye. office lady <laughs> who can see things real good actually i want to i want to ask about that does the eye like 
glow? Does it have an unusual iris? Does it look otherwise just like a human eye? What's it? What's it look like? No, it's um, it's sort of like a like a slightly spooky robot eye. So I imagine that it's um, it's like a like a fully white that there's no like iris, but then the pupil is like a almost like a red like glowing mechanical eye. So you can see it glow red, and you can see it kind of like zoom in and out because that's the cyberpunkiest eye I can possibly think of. Fantastic! I love that. Um, so Rail is gonna be the haunt, which is a shrewd hacker. Once again, I think Ember called all of our playbooks because we're predictable little bingies. We're not predictable, we just have clearly defined characters. If it's a predictable character, it's called an archetype. It's on purpose. Okay. All right. Yeah, okay, that's fair. I guess, like, call us predictable if you want to be, like, mean about it, I guess. So, uh, yeah, a a shrewd hacker. And then my cybernetic implant is on the ghost dot there. I was trying to think about how this looked like because it was actually funny. Originally, my idea was, like, oh, yeah, like, maybe they can go, like, invisible or something. But, like, the haunt has specifically a item called custom flickerware which is they go invisible for a minute and i'm like oh shit um but then i was reading the book which is when you ghost you navigate to a destination or execute an action without detection uh and like the example flavor text they give is like you might slink through a packed crowd evading the eyes of someone searching for you you might backstab someone in a crowd and move away unnoticed you might climb parkour dash tumble or jump to a destination unseen so instead of just like oh they're like invisible like i was thinking like tattoos almost like cybernetic tattoos that i don't know alter something within their physical composition real just has a camouflage pattern tattooed on their skin oh god it's a tribal tattoo excuse you (laughs) (laughs) no they don't want to be noticed uh yeah so that's just kind of what i was thinking maybe it's not just like making them go invisible but like for instance this is like you might climb parkour or dash or tumble or whatever maybe it's just like it gives i don't know some kind of physical enhancement it, it it's just a cool looking tattoo because tattoos are cool if i can propose something it could be something similar to like an, an active method of optical camouflage like a almost like a chameleon where it adapts colors and maybe even textures to look like the area around them you know, if, if they're framed against, uh, you know, like a gray, cloudy sky, then they in turn turn gray and cloudy. And it's not enough to, you know, it's not enough to turn them completely invisible or make them entirely blend in, but it's enough for, you know, at a passing glance, it'll give them enough time to, to get out of sight if someone happens to look their way. Or it'll help them blend in in a crowd by, you know, turning muted colors or, you know, turn turn uh, black and gray whenever they're in shadows. Yeah, that's cool. I like that. Because, you know, it's just the... Uh blip under ghost so it's just some kind of cybernetic implant that helps with uh ghosting i guess so that's that's cool but see here's the thing is it just makes me think of the chameleon monster from monsters Inc. i mean it's not in, and you in make fun of me for comparison. muppets <laughs> <laughs> no no yeah but that's cool i like that and then for special abilities i have something called machined plasma uh, which is take one stress to activate a function of your customized nanites for a few minutes so for instance i could mirror someone else's nanites with the touch establish a link to technology transfer and store data on my nanites so just hacker shit basically and also i took trust in me which is you get plus one dice versus a target with whom you have an intimate relationship i don't entirely know what i could use that for but that just seems like with everything Rill's been going through, like their character arc, I thought it would be cool if I did eventually find a way to enact that ability. So we'll see. We'll see. Rill's gonna seduce the NPCs this arc. <laughs> I mean, if the NPCs trust them, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I think that's everything. Okay, I think that's everything we've got for characters. We can all do cool stuff. You can do super cool stuff like blending against the sky and fight off entire gangs and uh, lie really well to somebody so before we dive in i did forget to talk about a small rule uh which i will be talking about now called the ripple the ripple is a super fun thing you can do before you make a a roll you can add a bonus die to your roll if you accept basically sort of a, a devil's bargain which i actually think is what it's called in blades in the dark The GM or other players can say, actually, I think 
this thing should happen. Like, you're going to lose an item, or there's going to be some collateral damage, or we're going to really upset a faction. Uh, and in return, the person making the roll gets a bonus die to use on their roll. The ripple always happens even if they fail, and you don't ever have to do one. You can always deny a ripple with no penalty, regardless of, of what it is. But it's it's basically just a little interesting way in there for players to be like, yeah, I really want this rule to succeed, um, and I will deal with the consequences later, and as a result, something super fun and usually terrible happens. So keep that in mind as we start playing. And the last thing I want to talk about before we start playing is this game's setting. I had the idea to have this game take place in a setting that was a campaign that I once played in many, many years ago called Endless Oceans, run by my very, very good friend, Joseph Diaz. That setting was entirely his brainchild. It was a really, really fun game, and it is, in fact, the original game that Hope is from. I deliberately minimize callbacks to the original setting with this because literally the only people who know about that setting and what happened in that game are six people, none of which I think will listen to this podcast, except, wow. except wow. Joe. Joe listens, <laughs> Joe listens to this podcast. Uh, Good. But in this case, I spent a lot of time talking about this this setting and how it changed and, and some nuances with, with Joe. Um, and he provided an inordinate amount of help. So I want to thank him both for his help and for letting me play around in his world. So unless anybody has any more questions or character points, we can go ahead and dive right in. Does anyone have have anything else they want to say or discuss before we get started? No, let's go. I want to hack some shit. Let's do it. You're going to hack the whole planet, baby. Okay, so we will pick up as we always do in the library. How long has it been, do you think, since you got back from your last mission? I'm going to say a couple of very awkward and uneasy weeks. I would say after the last arc, Rill would just kind of come clean about pretty much everything. Just like what happened, how it all started, what happened in the dark library. They'd know about their thoughts and admissions of like not sure what to do with all of this stuff. They'd know about in the journal, in their journal, was the handwriting that was clearly not theirs. They would come clean about everything in regards to that, because they kind of have no choice. It would be super awkward if they just hid <laughs> for the rest of their lives. It's a big library, but not that big. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> they've seen they've seen TV shows and movies. It's like, you can try your best to avoid people, but it's not going to happen, especially in the library where it's like this fucking asshole location would just probably make them bump into Zen and Linda at every opportune moment anyway. And they're like, <laughs> all right, I'll just head it off at the pass. This is probably not the first time a friend of Zen's has either thought about or actively tried to kill her. So <laughs> that's so sad. <laughs> she takes it pretty well. She understands that Rail has been like manipulated and Zen has also had a lot of experience with being manipulated. Zen's response is mostly sympathetic. And also Zen almost killed a copy of Rail also. Which, that feels weird, even if that copy of Rail was trying to kill her. So, Zen's ultimate response to Rail's experience, Zen is going to force Rail to start, like, actually doing combat training. Rail's been sitting out on the sides so far, but, like, now Zen is very, very insistent that Rail is going to learn how to defend themselves properly. Uh, no, I'm good, actually. I have, uh... No, thank you, but it's actually- I'm, I'm good. I'm fine. It's fine. I don't think you are. I am, I promise you. I'm- I'm taking care of it. What does that mean? <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> ominous. <laughs> yeah, that did sound pretty ominous, didn't it? Uh, I've- You have another secret already? No, what? Wait. Uh, yes, actually, I guess that is another secret. Um- <laughs> Yeah, okay, well, so after after the whole dark library thing, I thought I might need to kill you at some point, and I know I can't take you in a fight, so I asked someone to help me learn how to fight. Someone. 
I mean, like, I don't want to learn how to fight from you if you're the person Real, I... buddy. What? If you're trying to kill me, I'm the best person to learn to fight from. Yeah, no, but then then it's like you, I, you would know all my moves because I just learned them from you, you know? Like, that doesn't make sense. Frankly, I'm a little hurt. I, okay. But I, I forgive you, and I'm glad you're taking care of yourself. You seem more hurt that I... And not learning sword fighting from you than, than me admitting I've been thinking about killing you. That is correct. <laughs> okay. Uh, understandable. I, I know you already said you forgive me, but I just want to say formally that I, I apologize for not going to your sword training classes. Well, I am glad that you have taken the initiative, even if it was for a weird reason. I'm glad you're learning how to protect yourself. That does bring me some, some peace. Okay, cool. What's Linda's reaction to all this? <laughs> so, uh, first of all, when Linda hears what's been going on with Rill, she like starts to tear up and gives Rill as much of a hug as Rill is comfortable with because she feels so bad that Rill was like in pain and confused and upset and that she didn't she didn't realize and couldn't stop it. So, she's really worried about that. She's extremely happy when when Rill and Zen are able to like resolve it because she was mentally imagining like spending a few weeks like tiptoeing around it and hanging out with Rill and hanging out with Zen and trying to Linda, like... aren't you the adult in this group? Like <laughs> <laughs> She thought she was gonna have to like do like the rom com thing where you try to to get two best friends to stop being mad at each other and like slowly accidentally get them to like friendship meet cute again. Um, and so she's like very relieved that they were able to um, talk everything out and that things are pretty much okay. She is really disturbed by Dark Linda. Obviously, she saw her in their last mission um, as the anchor. So she has like some awareness. But everything that Real tells her like really creeps her out. And so she's just kind of, you know, she's on the outward. She's Linda. She's really happy that um, that the group is back together and that things aren't as tense and that everything's kind of out in the open. But now she's like kind of having to grapple with the fact that um, there's someone out there who is her, but like the meanest, worst possible her. Um, it's one thing to see evil Desi and it's another to see evil Rill. Evil you is like a rough concept for Linda to wrap her head around. <laughs> so, so she yeah, is... Yeah, I've been um, there, buddy. <laughs> so she is outwardly um, you know, relatively happy and things are back to normal, but inwardly she's like, oh no, I don't know how I feel about this. So, um, so that's kind of how Linda's feeling. Things are pretty much back to normal and she she just has some like uh, existential dread she's got to wrestle with as we all do yeah in some you know. form. <laughs> uh, yeah that's generally true. most of us don't meet meet our our evil counterparts and and that's what prompts the existential dread but it's kind of it's kind of there but since i'm here hope is is back in in the limelight however briefly so uh, since since you guys got back, she is is not in particular the most perceptive of people when it comes to emotional intelligence, but she is definitely there enough to notice that something has gone wrong. She would very much attempt to ask real about it in kind of a subtle way during some of their their training sessions. Hey, why do you look sadder than usual? <laughs> Probably more of like a is is everything all right? Did something happen? Uh, yeah, you know, more, like, fucked up eldritch stuff. Um, I kind of got, uh, my brain got, like, weird eldritch hooks metaphorically in it, and then I tried to kill Zen, uh, which I'd been thinking about for a while because of an evil Linda who told me to because she said mean things about me and then uh, I guess that's just how you get me to do things for you. You just kind of bully me and then I just do it. Real got nagged. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's where we're at but you know, it's still kind of weird because I feel really guilty about it but like I told the others everything that's going on and so uh, I, I think we're good now. You feel really guilty about being mind controlled? Well, no, not mind-controlled. I mean, it was only half mind-controlled. Like, it was 60-40, 60 mind-control, 40 me. Um, but I, I don't know, I feel bad just having thought about it this whole time. Hope's gonna kind of take that for a moment. That's a lot uh, to unpack. <laughs> yeah. And then she's gonna be like, you know, I have 
at one point had to create detailed plans for how to kill every single one of my friends. Oh. Uh. The nature of the work that we were in, and the fact that some of them even became immortal, meant that after universe hopping for so long and seeing the rise and fall of so many empires and evil people that have, have come to power after living so long they lose their humanity, it meant that at some level I felt the need to prepare for that eventuality. And I've never had to do that. And my friends are good people. I assume I haven't talked to them in some time. Sometimes in the kind of line of work that we do, it's just an eventuality that you may have to prepare for someday. I don't think you necessarily should hold that self against you, especially given what you all have done and, and the friendships that you made. I don't necessarily think you need to feel guilty about that fact because what happened to you may one day happen to Zen. And if something cannot be done, it's just not going to end up well for anybody. I love how Hope is just like, no, we should still practice killing Zen. Yeah. <laughs> it's not just Zen. I mean, that's just where she comes from. Rill's just like, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess that's why I'm still here. <sighs> the things she said at the, you know, the dark library, like, it, they stuck with me because, I don't know, I have brain worms, but also because they're true that I'm kind of useless in that sense, so... That's why I'm here, and I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm grateful that you're, you've kind of got a, you've lived a pretty crazy life, so I'm, I'm appreciative of that. Not that I'm, like, appreciative that your life's crazy, but I, I, I guess that you kind of are helping me out through this. That's nice. Now get ready, because I'm going to throw you halfway across the room. Okay. And then she does. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> Hope has also been going to... Zen's sword fighting sessions still and is slowly becoming a better sword fighter but whenever she gets frustrated she just throws the sword away and flips Zen onto the mat and it kind of helps I assume (laughs) so much tension Hope is fighting Zen to practice killing her to take that knowledge back to (laughs) (laughs) yeah she's she's the intermediary (laughs) Zen is just like thrilled by Hope's like unarmed combat style and how like this small human sized person can like throw her that's like magical to her (laughs) I like how they bond by just kind of like beating each other up and then go out for drinks maybe I don't know is there a I'm I'm sure there's a bar somewhere here yeah Dumpling will bring you guys drinks Dumpling knows how to make drinks we drink in the library all the time yeah Linda's personality is margaritas. Yeah, it sure is. <laughs> That's fair. Okay, you've all gotten back here to the library after a rather emotionally difficult time and, and decided to kind of try and patch up those fractured bonds. It's been a couple of weeks since then as things have kind of settled back more into a routine. Um, it, it sounds like though things are, are largely fixed, there's still kind of some, some hiccups, usually from more self-inflicted mental blocks. So uh, that one day, after you've, you've all been here for a bit, you're kind of dealing with all this, you get the notification from your journals again. What's the immediate feeling that you all get from that? Zen is so ready. She gets antsy if it goes too long between missions. She's always got to be doing something. She's always got to have something to do. Real's pretty reserved. So I like to think that their whole thing with Hope, their arrangement with Hope, has been kept a secret. I'd like to propose during this time is when the journals vibrate give notification and so they can run <laughs> the bookshop and real just looks like winded and just like tired and just like a little frazzled <laughs> with with hope right behind them it's funny that hope would be in second place for that that's true but... that's true hope would be first place <laughs> oh, you're <absolutely>. right <laughs> but only oh, she would she would slow down deliberately to make sure that that real can uh, can stay behind i think they're kind of caught up in like oh shit like we have a mission I guess fucking let's go. I, I gotta go to that. They might be a little, not hesitant, but like kind of on edge about it. So Linda has been a little more withdrawn than normal, just like a hair. And so she probably is like sort of um, turning over some thoughts in her head when the journal goes off. Um, and when she gets that, she, when she's aware that, that there is a new mission, she sort of um, is a little like jumpy and nervous about it because part of her is like, 
What if I meet that dark self? She's so scary. What if if she's actually just me and I'm the scary one? What if? And so she has to sort of like <laughs> push that back and away for a little bit. And so she um, kind of tries to turn that more into like, hooray, I get to go on a mission with my friends. Um, this should be a nice normal mission. This should be more like the one we took where we got to hang out with the giant bumblebees and a lot less like the one where I anchored while everyone turned into scary monsters. You know, she always tends to go into these missions with like a sense of optimism and excitement about where they're going to go and what's going to happen. So she's she's going to try and kind of look on the bright side and say, hey, it might be some kind of cool world I haven't seen. Maybe I'll get to drive a giant robot or or snuggle some giant bees or see something really cool and beautiful I haven't seen. Um, And she's going to kind of try and ignore the nagging thought in the back of her head of like, what if we run into more of this scary dark stuff? So she is going to, um, you know, pull herself together, dig into her secret stash of snacks and head off to the book drop. So it sounds like Hope and Rill arrive first. Uh, Hope, when she arrives, is just as normal, uh, not even really breathing hard. Rill is panting, out of breath, hair mussed up, clothes ruffled. They got thrown across the room at least three times. (laughs) So does does Zen or Linda uh, show up next? Probably Zen. Probably Zen. Linda has to prepare snacks and Zen just goes for it. That's fair. Hope's gonna give give Zen a nice wave when she shows up. And Zen's just like, "Oh shit, is Hope coming with us again?" I think so. Awesome. Um, my my journal buzzed. I haven't vibrated it yet. Will decided that they wanted to race. I I mean, I didn't decide to race. You just I just start. I just left the room, and then you followed me and thought it was like a race. I don't know why you're racing me. You you would beat me. You do. <laughs> I get it. If, if you know, if you see something moving fast, sometimes you have to chase it. Yeah, it's 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 a natural instinct. Yep. Ah, oh, okay. All right. Hey, Zen. Hi, girl. So Linda's going to walk around the corner then, and she has a paper plate covered in um, really good-looking chocolate chip cookies. And when uh, she sees Hope, she does a little wave and says, Hope, it's so good to see you again. Hello, Linda. Are you coming with us? You should have a cookie, regardless of whether you're coming with us. But uh, but it'd be lovely if you were. Oh, I I don't know. I actually haven't looked in, in the journal yet. She's going to be like, oh, wait, hang on. I have to. Let's figure that out in a minute. So she sits down, table, and pulls out the journal and, and flips the pages uh, and, and opens it up. And she goes, uh, actually, I it looks like I'm the anchor this time. And you guys are going to... S- she trails off as she read the words, and her her eyes kind of get wide, and she says, "You're going to to Sid Cathil. You're you're going to my home." Oh, that's kind of cool, right? I yeah. Um, I mean, do you want to like go down? Maybe we can like swap places or something. I appreciate it, but I'm not sure how to change that. Also, I uh, since I'm the anchor for this one, this will actually help quite a bit. Um, so what she does, she, she puts her journal face down on the, the table there in the book drop, and she reaches into her bag that she brought with her, and she pulls out what looks like a cage made out of like a, a gleaming sort of blue-tinged metal, and she puts it over her journal, and then she, she pulls a laptop out and plugs that into a little cord that's sticking out from the cage, uh, and she sets all this stuff up. Um, while presumably the rest of you are are talking or, or eating cookies or perhaps watching with a bemused interest. Zen is watching with a bemused interest. Yeah, Rills is like, what the fuck? Why did you ever show me this? This is dope. <laughs> Linda's leaning over to Zen and trying to explain what a laptop is to her, but um, she realizes halfway through that she only has a basic grasp on how computers work, so... <laughs> So it's a like, magic under- box. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she understands it from the point of view of like, it's not magic, it's powered by electricity, and you can open it up and do things on it. But if Zen had any further questions, like how does the electricity turn into like Microsoft Word, Linda is like, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> I think by now, y'all have probably tried to explain electricity to Zen before, and she has just decided it is magic. There is no difference. Hope finishes setting the whole thing up and goes, Okay, um, it looks like you are going to Sid Cathil. I, I wish I could tell you where on that world, because there's a lot of different places, and I would have a lot of different advice depending on where you were going, if I knew. It looks like you're meeting up with somebody called Takomi Hunter? I don't know who that is. I've never met them before. It doesn't really tell me anything about the anomaly, either. It's kind of short on 
details. Yeah, we're used to that. The sketch you get of Takomi is of a tiefling woman, as a matter of fact. It's a pencil sketch, so you can't really tell, you know, coloration or anything like that. But it looks like she's got, contrary to Rill's, Rill has ram horns, right? The kind of mm-hmm. curly ones. Mm-hmm. Contrary to Rill's ram horns, these are more just kind of two that are, are that are like almost slicked back over the, the top of her head. Um, and her hair has been shaded pretty dark. Um, and it looks like she's got a rather a rather fierce expression going on there. But it's it's enough of the sketch that you're gonna get. So she finishes setting up the device. Uh, she turns pages by like reaching in with a pencil into the cage and, and flipping it over. She goes, um, okay, I think I, th- I think we're all set. Sid Cathil, as far as I can tell, is it's it's got magic. Um, whenever I left, there wasn't a whole lot of large technology, just a lot of sailing ships. Actually, we can settle this all when you get down there. I keep forgetting I can get in contact with you. Yeah, uh, I think I've caught my breath, so I'm I'm good whenever. Is this your first time anchoring, Hope? Uh, yes. Do you have any advice? No, it's pretty easy. Just pull us back when, well, if we get in trouble, hopefully not, but uh, pull us back when we're done otherwise, and uh, Hope, let us know if there's anything you want us to do while you're down there. If you see an old friend or our familiar face or what have you, just uh, just keep us posted, all right? Doesn't always let us bring back souvenirs, but we can try. Yeah, yeah. I'll certainly try. I appreciate it. Um, I'm going to see if I can figure out where these signals are coming from. Maybe by the time you get back here, I'll have some more answers for you. Yeah, Dumpling has just waddled over, climbed up onto the table, and is just plopped on top of the cage. Herb's going to reach up and and scratch the stomach and be like, okay, um, are you ready to go? (laughs) Yep. Okay. Let's go. Yeah. Zen slaps Rill on the back and... uh... Heads for the book pushes, draft. Pushes, yeah, pushes them into the book drop. Like, oh shit, a little harder than I was expecting. <laughs> Hope's going to wave goodbye to them as you all descend into the portal. The feeling of traveling between other dimensions is one that by now you have experienced a myriad amount of times. But out of out of curiosity, since I can't actually remember if it's been described before, what, what does it feel like to each of you? What does it feel like whenever you're being pulled between these dimensional walls and, in some cases, transformed into different forms? I mean, for real, at least in this case, since they get to keep their original form for the most part, it is not as uncomfortable or weird. I think in this case, it's more of a lighter, like, trailing kind of uncomfortable, unfamiliar feeling. You know, the type of feeling where it's only minor adjustments being made. Out of all their experiences, having their form undone, uh, you know, like a solid 7 out of 10. It's okay. It's not bad. <laughs> so you're all you're all being, being pulled through and, as noted, slightly morphed. Um, and during these trips, you always have kind of this, this dim sense of, of consciousness and sensation. But as you're going through this time, something goes different. A few seconds into it, as you're, as you're being, you know, changed and morphed around to fit the new world, you feel a, a sudden, very hard, very deliberate jerk um, that just yanks your body in one direction. Um, and as you're, you're trying to figure out exactly what that was, or if you managed to hit something in, in the ether space between dimensions, if that's even what this is, you feel it again and again, and then you suddenly feel yourself being ripped off of your native course and sent spiraling down somewhere else. Um, as, as you're flying through this, this, this dense space, um, you're, you're, you're being tossed and turned and, and spun all around. And at, at this point, it's incredibly difficult to tell which way you're facing, much less where you're going. And when you finally break back out of it again into the real world, into a normal world, you land with a heavy thud. And when you open your eyes, you are immediately blinded by the light. It's a different room than what you were expecting. There's a lot of metal paneling on the walls. Once you do manage to get your bearings about you, there's a lot of metal paneling on the walls. The floor itself is hard and steel. The smell is actually the thing that hits you first, and it smells sterile, extremely sterile, like nothing except for for bleach and cleaning products have been in this room for the longest time. The first thing that you hear after you land is a a voice coming out of the loudspeaker that says, Ah, you've arrived? Good. Let's begin. (laughs) 
The Eternity Archives is hosted, produced, and edited by Dorka, Bappy, and Ziva. Find us on Twitter at, at @thearchivespod or online at theeternityarchives.com. Our intro music is Paint the Sky by Hans Adam, and sound effects are obtained from zapsflat.com. Check out our show notes for more information and some helpful resources. Consider supporting us by telling your friends about us, or leave us a tip at our Ko-fi page, ko-fi.com slash theeternityarchives. Subscribe to our Ko-fi for all sorts of exclusive bonuses, behind-the-scenes content, and other fun surprises. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.